millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome back to the Leaving Eaton Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Gavi, uh, Gavriel Hakohen, G to the is a V to the is I, Shalomi, my homie Hebrew from the tribe of Levi. And I am here with my BFF, <laughs> cult expert and cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. How are you doing, Sadie? I am doing great. Cool. <laughs> what are we talking about today? <laughs> Uh, so, so today, um, our brains may be a little bit fried because we are doing, this is the first part of a two-part series on the IFB beliefs about heaven and hell. And I sat down to write these episodes and I thought that I would be able to present a full and complete historical primer on the concepts of heaven and hell in Christianity at large. Um, that hubris is incredibly on brand for me. <laughs> I was uh, not able to pr- to uh, make a comprehensive list of all of that because it would be like two six-hour episodes. But what we are talking about is the IFB beliefs on heaven and hell, and we're going to dig into where those beliefs came from, wh- what they are rooted in, what influenced the people who spoke the words that are still quoted about heaven and hell, what influenced the writers of scripture. I think it's going to be really interesting today. We are starting off with uh, the IFB beliefs on heaven. Yes, we just had a big episode about hell last week. And so we didn't want to do hell two weeks in a row because, you know, that. Just kind of a negative thought. Uh, But today we're talking about heaven. 
um, which is exciting to me, which is exciting to us. And it's a very interesting topic. I mean, in fact, I remember when we listened to the HAC tour tapes, there was a song about a man who just got saved. There was a line in the song about how they're building him a mansion on Hallelujah Street. And it seemed to me that the IFB interpretation of heaven just seemed like being a rich person on earth, mm-hmm. which was odd to me, but. IFB heaven is very much focused on the idea of rewards. So we are going to talk about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl, the wealth, the riches, the gold, the mansions, all of that that they fantasize will be in heaven. But we're also going to talk about where some of these very specific visions of heaven that are preached as fact by the IFB come from and what extra biblical sources of inspiration they may have had. But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult, the cult in which she was raised. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there's numerous things that you can do to support us. Easiest thing that you can do is hit that like, follow, subscribe button on whatever platform you choose to listen on because that really helps us out. That allows uh, other people who listen to similar shows as you to get recommended our show by the algorithm. And it just helps us find more listeners. So we really appreciate it when you guys do that. You can also join our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast where we have extended uncensored ad-free versions of our episodes which come out a couple days early so you can listen to it um i think friday night if you're on the west coast i think it comes out like at midnight my time on saturday i should know this because i'm the one who uploads them but you can get them a couple days early instead of having to wait until monday to get them so if you want to listen to them over the weekend then you can join our patreon and get the episode early and listen to it over the weekend it's uncensored it's ad free and it's extended you can also join our facebook group which is called facebook.com slash groups slash eden exodus and our subreddit which is reddit.com slash r slash eden exodus which is also a lot of fun which is a great place to hang out with other podcast fans where you can talk deconstruction you can share memes you can fundy snark a little bit within reason not don't be too mean um and you can you know just just talk about religion and just talk about you know anything that we really talk about on the show is is a topic you can talk about in that group uh anything else to say sadie i don't think so oh uh one more thing that i'm really excited about is that in a couple weeks uh, i don't know exactly when we're going to do this episode but in a couple weeks we've got an episode coming out uh where if you're a fan of real housewives of salt lake city uh, there is one of the uh, real housewives from Real Housewives of Salt Lake City who is allegedly a cult leader. And so we're going to talk about that. And that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's it, it, I, I am deeply excited for that episode. That's going to be a great episode. Yeah, you should. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that in a couple of weeks. I'm really excited for that. Uh, I guess before we get into this episode, the last thing to do is thank the patrons. And I want to thank all of our patrons, 
uh, for supporting our show because we would not be able to devote the time that we devote to this show if we didn't have the financial support that is provided to us by our patrons. Um, but we have three I gave it all to your patrons. Your names are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale on behalf of his lovely Deconstruct Arena of a wife, Madeline Antrim. Thank you guys so much for supporting us at the I gave it all tier level. And I appreciate you uh, all dropping your wedding rings and watches and uh, solid gold tie clips into the collection offering tray and signing us over half of your paychecks every week uh, because otherwise yes. we'd <laughs> joking. They no, don't do giant. that. Giant. <laughs> Giant thank you to our, our uh, I gave it all to your patrons. And giant thank you to our Faith Promise Missions to your patrons. Your names are Alex P, Ali Allen, I'm Israel Hi, Anisha Patel, Autumn of Our Discontent, Brittany, Krissa, Crystal Patterson, Dan the Trans Man. Ooh, Dan the Trans Man. Congratulations, Welcome, Dan, man. on being a trans man. On that tea. Feel the tea flow through your body. It gives you focus, makes you stronger. <laughs> I don't know what we're referencing. <laughs> you haven't seen Star Wars? It's the Emperor. I've told you multiple times. I have seen all of Star Wars, but not in order and not paying attention. Oh man! Ah, oh, well, it's that's fine. It's 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 cool. It's not for everybody. Not everyone likes Star Wars. I was obsessed with Star Wars as a kid. And Dan, the trans man, you're a cool guy. Thanks for supporting us. Uh, Regardless of whether or not he likes Star Wars. That's true. Dora J, Eleanor Donahue, Enchanted Fairy, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Hope Norum, Horton Here's a Shane, Janine Collin, Jen Kaharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kay Turwee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Maggie Fink, Marlena Stuve, Marsha Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arendt, Rob the Methodist, Sadie's actual BFF trademark, Chartuterie, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, and as always, Wes the Cowboy, the one and only cowboy. We love you, Wes the Cowboy, the one and only cowboy. Yeah, thank you so much to especially our I Gave It All Tier Faith Promise Missions Tier patrons, but to everybody who supports us over on Patreon. Um, I am blown away by the community and the support we have over there. And as always, thank you to people who support our show in other non-financial ways, like Gabby was saying, leaving us a good review, sharing us on social media, sharing us with friends and family, subscribing on whatever podcast player you use. All of you are part of what we've been able to build here, and we are so thankful. Yes, thank you guys so much. We are really trying to to I feel like the deconstruction movement has been really like snowballing lately, and it it feels amazing to sort of be a part of that and I want to like thank to thank you to just all of our listeners who are a part of that for being the people that you are uh as well. hey Gavi, you know what, what? you were grafted in to the deconstruction movement. Oh no. <laughs> no. I'm I'm grafted even though I'm not a deconstructorino. I was grafted in in the one root of deconstruction. The one root of deconstruction. <laughs> that makes a Joshua Harris Jesus. Ew. <laughs>
He's the leader of the deconstruction movement. The leader of the deconstruction movement. And Sadie, you want to hit us with the TW? In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we'll mention at least a few of those topics, but we try really hard to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant and necessary for the story that we're telling. And if we are going to go into any graphic detail, we will give you a heads up before we do so, so people can skip as needed. This episode is all about the IFB view of heaven, and that could be a general trigger for people. I'm also going to be quoting a lot of scripture from the King James, like seriously a lot as well as some hymns about heaven. We are approaching these things from a neutral standpoint, not from the standpoint of this is absolutely real or this is absolutely fake. Um, We are also going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ, which can be triggering for some people, including myself. Uh, And we are going to talk about um, having blood on your hands in heaven, uh, which is another topic that could really get some people. Thank you for that. Well, speaking of deconstruction, should we do some deconstructing heaven today? Deconstructing heaven. Okay, what's deconstructing heaven? Is that just like, uh, I was going to make a joke. but Well, I it's where you it. go like loot the streets of gold and take them to be melted down and so you can bring them back to earth and then have a bunch of money. I mean, isn't that just prosperity gospel? Kind of. Okay. So this is going to be a lot of setup, and I'm sorry if it's boring, but I really think it's interesting setup. It's never boring, Sadie. That's the thing is every time we think that an episode is going to be boring and have too much information in it, people end up (laughs) liking it way more than all of the stuff that we're like, this is going to be really funny. Yeah. So I have faith in our listeners. The IFB are really committed to having everything come directly from scripture right? It's biblical literalism. It's exactly what the Bible says in the King James Version for reasons. When we talk about heaven and hell, I've been doing a just a boatload of research into this. And what I've found is that the IFB beliefs about heaven and hell, as well as a lot of our like cultural Christianity, cultural consciousness beliefs about heaven and hell come from a lot of different sources. And what the IFB has done is take those traditions that came down from a lot of different sources and then find it in the scriptures, like find a turn of phrase in scripture that works with their belief. Like in the Microphone to Hell episode last week, we talked about how there were all these verses that were sort of about hell generally associated with a downwards direction or something below the earth. And then when science told us that the center of the earth was a place of great heat and possibly molten rock, biblical literalists thought, great, that proves our opinion that hell is in the center of our planet. So they already had the belief and then they found something to confirm the belief and then they had the belief more. As it turns out, and this is going to be a controversial take, heaven and hell are not in the Bible as much as you would think they were like from movies. It sounds weird saying it, but the Bible is not really primarily a book about heaven and hell and how to get to one and avoid the other. Now, I know that 
the way that IFB preached the Bible, they will preach it as your roadmap to heaven. They'll preach it as B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Oh, I've never heard that before. Oh, there you go. You have a new piece of fundy jargon. Yeah. Yeah. They will frame the Bible as if every Bible story, so, so the story of Jonah or the story of David and Goliath or the story of Noah is an allegory about how to get to heaven and avoid going to hell. But when you take out those allegorical interpretations that may or may not have been intended, you're left with a lot less literal discussion about heaven and hell than you think there might be. A lot of, because you get the, you have these verses that are ambiguous. You have verses that, yeah, you could interpret that to be about heaven or hell, but there are, it's not specific. It's not detailed. And what the IFB have done is taken a piece of church tradition and then found a Bible verse that seems to support it. And then they use that Bible verse as proof for what they think about heaven. So we have to talk about where did the church tradition around heaven come from? We will talk about Dante's Inferno and the Divine Comedy next week. I know, Gavi, you have a lot that you want to say about that in particular. But I found something really interesting when I was looking up where the IFB views of heaven and hell might have descended from. So there's a Greek literary device called catabasis. A catabasis is a detailed narrative description of what the afterlife is like. Often it will talk about both paradise and the underworld. And of course, that is what the Divine Comedy is. It is a catabasis. But over a thousand years before the Divine Comedy was written, there were all of these Greek catabasis. Like it is a a common literary device in ancient Greek literature, roughly around the time of the writing of the New Testament. There were also Christian and Christian Jewish catabasis. Hmm. So there are apocryphal writings like the Apocalypse of Peter, which was written about 100 to 150 years after Jesus's death, and the Apocalypse of Paul, which was written about 350 to 400 years after Jesus's death, among many, many others apocryphal writings that describe heaven and hell in very vivid detail in a very similar way to the divine comedy. What's interesting about these Christian catabases is that they were heavily inspired by earlier Greek catabases. And that means that the early view of Christian heaven was influenced by Greek views of the afterlife. It was also influenced by a desire to bridge the gap between Christianity and the current Jewish conception of the afterlife. A lot of early Christians had been Jewish and then converted to Christianity. It is a huge topic in the book of Romans and many other of Paul's writings. Uh, Paul did a ton of work to try to build a bridge between Gentile believers and Jewish believers. And here's how we can all be Christians together without driving each other insane. (laughs) Um, And these These catabases can also be trying to do the same thing. They are trying to build a bridge between. So this is the Jewish concept of the afterlife that you may have been exposed to growing up. And then this is 
the Greek concept of the afterlife that you've also probably been exposed to. And this is the new Christian thing that we're all doing together. And I'm going to write a huge description of the afterlife that tries to blend all of those things into something we can all agree on. So we're talking about the very late Second Temple era and the very early rabbinic era of Judaism. And according to my research, Jewish thought at this time did include a stronger tradition of the good place and the bad place, stronger than what we see in Jewish thought today. And then that changed throughout the rabbinic era. The Jewish people believe in sort of a world to come, but the details on this are sort of fuzzy. The idea is that when you die, the peace of God that is in every person returns to the divine. And much of the Jewish belief about the afterlife uh, comes from uh, Kabbalistic traditions and not from the Bible itself. So there are a bunch of different sort of theories and permutations to it. What I can tell you is that it is not ever, or at least it is not really from what I have seen believed to be a place of material reward. I'm going to introduce this and then expound on it later. But when Jesus directly speaks about heaven in scripture, he does not seem to be presenting an alternative to Jewish thought at the time, as one might assume he was. You might assume that Jesus was saying, Here's the Jewish thought on heaven and hell, but they're all wrong. Here's a totally new thing, and this is the truth. But that's not really accurate. Uh, what's more accurate is to say that he was expounding on Jewish thought about the afterlife at the time. And side note, this is something that Jesus did a ton. Um, I'm thinking of Matthew 5, 7, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. See also Matthew 5, 43, 44. You have, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Out In all respect to our listeners who are not believers or otherwise not Christians or otherwise believe that Jesus is real or not real or believe that he is the Messiah or not the Messiah, all of that is fine. And speaking with respect to all of those different people in our audience. Whether you see Jesus as a character in a book speaking or as a real person whose words were recorded for us, this character slash person, Jesus, in the New Testament is telling us how he sees his role in relation to Jewish law and Jewish, Jewish traditions. And what he is telling us is that he is there to yes and the law and the prophets. And what we have recorded from him when he speaks on these things abides by that. And this is not something that Jesus was the only one who was doing. That oh, Jesus sure. is not Yeah, like the way that Jewish people live, especially if you like all of the Jewish laws that there are things that are Jewish laws are not and we've talked about this before are not things that are specifically written in the Torah as commandments. They're like interpretations of what the commandments say by rabbis later. And, and you know, people like Maimonides would what we believe the laws and what we believe the commandments are, and and people who we believe are very wise to say, okay, well, this is what it says, and this is how we interpret it, and that's what this means. How this is how you it comes down to live in in 
how you live in life. And when you look at Jewish history, it's really fascinating to see how much of Jewish traditions are either influenced by other surrounding cultures or are reactionary towards other surrounding cultures and are created specifically to distance the Jewish people from their neighbors who would have been seen as idol worshipers. And so while this bleeds somewhat into some of the commandments that are in the Torah, another place where its influence is very strong is in the traditions of the culture. And you can see that here with like the heaven and hell beliefs, as Sadie said, with the the catabasis. And when I was doing research about this, I knew that I would end up with some, because I saw so many different theories. There was like, it it was just extremely inconclusive. What I didn't expect to find was that so many of the prevailing theories and traditions went in and out of fashion over the years. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Right. And what we need to know for the purpose of this episode is that a more literal, more separated, there is a good place and a bad place, and they're not necessarily the same place. And the good place is really, really good. And the bad place involves some physical torture. That was in fashion in Judaism around the first couple centuries CE. And then it fell out of fashion and remains pretty out of fashion now. For listeners who are a lot more immersed in Christianity, the thing that we might miss is that Judaism doesn't have the evangelistic need that Christianity has. So the ideas about heaven and hell changing is kind of less of a big deal for Jews than it is for Christians, because Christians tend to have this very set idea of you have to do this exact thing to go to heaven, and if you go to hell, you're tortured forever. That's not like that whole framework of how Christians see to t- tend to see the world is just not really there in Judaism, and that can be a little hard for us to get our get our heads around but i think it's an important thing for us to try to understand as best as we can because it really influences everything we're talking about today when i was looking into prevalent beliefs in judaism around the time of jesus i did see that the idea of hell maybe it's not actual torture but it's at least very 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 unpleasant was kind of the thing it mm. was in and i got some of this information from the Jewish Annotated New Testament, which, uh, thank you, listener Aaron Piotowski, for <laughs> turning me on to this book. I'm so glad that I had it for this episode, and I got to do one of my favorite things, which is grab a very large book off my shelf. <laughs> um, it's your happy place. It it truly is. Now that you actually have like a, an office with a, a bookshelf book in it. That can- <laughs> Uh, So anyway, I have my actually got to reference for these two heaven and hell episodes. I got to reference um, Jewish annotated New Testament and my dad's book. Where was there? So this was a neat one to do. I'm glad that you got to reference your dad's book. That's that's really sweet. Well, well, what we what we really have to keep in mind when we talk about the Jewish influences on the Christian view of heaven, heaven and hell is that we would do ourselves a great disservice when we try to think of Judaism as diet Christianity or put Judaism in terms of Christianity. So I want to be real careful not to do that. But we also, the fact of the matter is that just the common thought, the popular thought in this era of Judaism was a more literal heaven and hell, closer to what a lot of Christians currently believe. The apocalypses of Peter and Paul are both catabases. Catab- I did not look up the plural catabasi. of that. 
Catabasi? Is that Greek? Ugh, I don't know. <laughs> I looked up a lot of Greek pronunciation and plural for the for these two episodes. I did not look that one up. But they are both heavily influenced by Jewish and Greek concepts of the afterlife and by Jesus's words. Jesus's own words about heaven are influenced heavily by Jewish con- conceptions of the afterlife. And then he just added a bunch onto that, like expanded the canon. And then there's one more influence that tends to show up a lot in later Christian tradition, and that is visionaries and mystics. The most famous visionary, of course, would be St. John the Revelator, who famously wrote the book of Revelation after receiving an apocalyptic vision while in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which um, did probably grow hallucinogenic mushrooms around the time that he was exiled there. But that definitely has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. No, it's just crazy because it's crazy. Not crazy because of... it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Christian beliefs about the afterlife have been influenced by a lot of visionaries and mystics other than the one that got canonized in scripture. Um, As long as Christianity has been around, there was St. Perpetua in the late second, early third century, St. Teresa of Avila in the Middle Ages, St. Faustina, and the Fatima children in the last 110 years. But this also continues to this day, and it continues outside the Catholic Church with people like Alex Malarkey, whose childhood fiction was exploited, but nevertheless influenced a lot of people even after being discredited. For those who don't know who Alex Malarkey is, he is a little, he was, he's now a grown man, but he was a little boy whose family was in a very bad car accident and he almost died. And when he revived, he told his dad a story about how he had visited heaven and come back to life. And his parents exploited his story, added on to his story and sold a incredibly well-selling book about his story. And then he has later denied a lot of it as an adult. At the time, it was taken as a true vision of heaven in evangelical subculture. And that influenced the way that people think about heaven. If you think of this like a recipe, we've got Greek concepts of the afterlife, Jewish concepts of the afterlife, Uh, what Jesus actually said, what apostles later said in epistles, and then you add a bunch of visions and speculation and mysticism, and you mix that all together, you bake it for a few centuries and sprinkle some more visions on top. And that is the recipe for the common Christian view of heaven. And then if you're fundy enough to care, you go back way into Hebrew scripture and dig through like word choices in the Old and New Testament to try to confirm that what you got, the finished cake that you got is correct. But the, the, the pop Christianity version of heaven that you see at the end of the movie, like this is the end, that comes from Greek and Jewish thought and Jesus and apostles and vision and mysticism. And that's how you get that. So what are the actual IFB beliefs about heaven? What what are yeah. you learning if you're if you're a fundy? Thank you for sticking with me through the the inter- extremely extended introduction there. No, but that was really interesting. I'm glad you talked about that. I didn't know a lot of that stuff. 
Well, I want to pick apart like when I say, well, the IFB believes this thing, I want to be able to say, and that particular thing probably comes from Greek concepts of heaven, or it probably comes from this particular vision. So it was important to have it set up. So IFB specific beliefs about heaven. The cliff notes are, God was bored and lonely. He had angels to praise him all day and night, but he wanted creatures who would praise him of their own free will. So he created earth and made Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were in earthly paradise, the Garden of Eden, and they were told to not eat from one particular tree, which would impart the knowledge of good and evil. Before eating of the tree, they were fully formed humans, supposedly with free will, but also completely innocent, which doesn't sound 100% free to me. Anyway, Adam and Eve ate from the tree. This is known as the fall of man. And when they ate from the tree, because of their, when they ate from the tree, they became inherently sinful. And this sin has passed on through DNA to all born humans. We're not going to get into this today, but this also has something to do with the Fundy's hatred of evolution because humans were a special creation. This whole belief about salvation like influences why they have to believe that humans are a special creation. The IFB belief is that physical death is also part of the consequence, part of the DNA change in humanity after Adam's sin. Uh, Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So the IFB believe that physical death, physical illness, those are all part of a physical change that happened in human bodies after Adam's sin. Other Christians might frame this death as a spiritual death and then believe that Jesus offers a spiritual resurrection. So you're spiritually dead because of your sin, but Jesus can spiritually bring you back to life to be a fully spiritual human being. The IFB believes because of biblical literalism and the word death being used so often in relation to sin, the IFB believes that this death due to sin and resurrection due to Jesus are both a spiritual and a physical death and both a spiritual and a physical resurrection. And this is important because it influences their views on what exactly eternal life means. One observation that I have about the IFB is that they tend to take a sort of light version of whatever the prevailing scientific theory is and then add a little theology into that. You know what I'm saying? That, oh, yeah. Like, so DNA was discovered in 1953. So the IFB will say, God changed our DNA to make us able to die. And the complexity of DNA is proof of God's creation. And then they'll even accept that DNA is the mechanism through which traits are passed through generations, but they'll deny evolution like crazy. Like we got the, we got this with the Kent Hovind, um, when he made a big deal about specifying that Noah's Ark had two of every kind of animal, not two of every animal so that they would have like, oh, well, two wolves, but then the two wolves uh, from those two wolves, all of the breeds of dogs came like from the Frenchies to the golden retrievers, to the shepherds, to the huskies. But so, but he wouldn't have like Frenchies and huskies and, and goldens on the boat. He would, you know, he would have the wolves on the boat just to like mm -hmm. sort of make it like, and so he would have two snakes, but it wouldn't be two cobras, two pythons, two rattlesnakes. It, it's sort of like a way to couch things and make themselves seem more reasonable. 
in their own heads to what the idea of what a secular evolutionist would think to make themselves more likely to think like, oh, well, this is how I can relay this idea to a person and possibly win them over. But it relies on a lack of like full understanding of what the scientific concepts actually are that they're utilizing. And everybody who like really knows about these concepts sort of finds these half steps to be a bit ridiculous. That's kind of my observation on this. That's a great observation. Do you remember the fundy term for that? For what? For the um, um, for believing that Noah's Ark had two of every kind of animal, and then all the breeds of dogs that we have now evolved from those two wolves. Is it microevolution versus macroevolution? Yeah, you got it. So they'll say, "I believe in microevolution, but not macroevolution." And that sounds scientific. And somebody's like, "Oh, okay, that makes sense." And it's also how it's also how they explain all the different races of people coming from eight human beings who exited the ark, three of whom were brothers. So back to the cliff notes. Um, Adam fell, sin is in our DNA. God is perfect and can tolerate no less than perfection in his presence. Although God is everywhere, even in hell, but in hell people suffer the lack of God's presence. Don't ask me to explain that part. I didn't make it up. I can't explain it. Since sin is in our DNA, a sacrifice must be made in order for humans to attain perfection in God's eyes and spend eternity in heaven in the presence of God. God made a plan to send Jesus into the world to make an avenue for people to attain that perfection. This is where biblical literalism bites them in the butt again. (laughs) Because heaven is the term that they use for where we are going to spend forever with God after we die, right? Yes. There are actually several distinct places in scripture referred to as heaven, and scripture makes it clear that they are different places. And I am telling you now that we are going to run into the same issue next week when we talk about hell. (laughs) So buckle in. In scripture, there is the, the abode of God. It's referred to in the Old Testament as the dwelling place of God is a common phrase that would be used. Um, In the New Testament, Jesus refers to the dwelling place of God as my father's house. And it will also, in in the New Testament, can can just be referred to as heaven. There is also paradise, which is the IFB believe that paradise is where people who were righteous went as like a waiting room until Jesus died. So in IFB theology, paradise and hell used to be, it's basically the waiting room of heaven and the waiting room of hell, but these two doctor's offices share a lobby. So all the heaven people are on one side of the room and all the hell people are on the other side of the room. So in IFB theology, uh, righteous people like Abraham died and went to paradise, but then he had to hang out in paradise waiting for Jesus to die so that then he could move on up to heaven because nobody can go to actually heaven without Jesus. My apologies to all Jewish and Muslim listeners, because that may be really offensive. I think that's honestly kind of funny, though. That's good to hear. That You get Abraham and, well, who's a bad guy in the Bible? You get- uh, Ahab. Ahab. Yeah. Ahab, he, he, he wasn't very cool. You could get like one of the, uh, the angel rapists from Sodom and Gomorrah could be yeah. in there just hanging out and we're like, oh, we're, we're in here too. What are we all doing here? What's going on? 
<laughs> yeah, so on the hell side, they're already getting tortured. And on the heaven side, it's kind of like Abraham, Moses, Elijah, King David, all awkwardly hanging out on the other side of the room where from where people are getting tortured in hell, just like chilling for a couple thousand years, waiting for Jesus to die so that they can go to heaven. You think that King David and uh, Moses are out there in like doing trust falls, playing get to know you games <laughs> at the at their corporate office mixer. Team building. Team building heaven team building exercises. So in scripture, so there's there's God's abode, God's house, which we're going to use the word heaven for because it's the clearest. There's paradise, which is no longer being used because Jesus died and then he came back and took the keys to hell and then he took all of those people to heaven. And then that heaven is where people like Christian people, saved people go. Now when they die, they go to God's house. They go to heaven. Then also in scripture, there is the new heaven and the new Jerusalem, both of which are going to be created after Armageddon at the end of the world and come from the book of Revelation. The particular issue here that I'm going to get to in a minute is a the IFB will use scripture verses that are about paradise or about the new Jerusalem and use them to prove and describe heaven. And that is not what is in the Bible. So it's kind of like a bait and switch. Yeah. There is very, very little about, there's a, there's a lot of description in the Bible about the New Jerusalem, because that all comes from the book of Revelation. There is precious little about currently heaven, like where the dead good people are, or the dead saved people, if you're IFB, um, where God currently is, where the angels that didn't fall with Lucifer are currently hanging out. There's very little description of it. So that kind of, I think, freaks out the fundies because they can't describe it. So they borrow descriptions from the Bible describing other good afterlife places. (sighs) So the IFB beliefs about heaven. Um, Some people will say that God's dwelling place, heaven, was created during creation week. The Institute for Creation Research in particular believes that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, refers to God creating his own dwelling place and also creating angels during creation week. I think that's a bunch of baloney, personally, because heavens and the earth seems so particular to mean the sky and the earth. They do believe that hell, as it currently exists, was created after the fall of Lucifer, and it was intended only for Lucifer, Satan, and the one-third of the angels who followed Lucifer and attempted to do a coup in heaven. And then when humans messed up and became sinful, God was like, well, crap, now I'm going to have to make that hell bigger and send humans to it. So I want to just list off IFB beliefs about heaven. I asked Gavi to take a look at some Jack Heil sermons about heaven to help compile this list. And I would love to know what you found. It's interesting because I assumed that I, knowing Jack Hiles and his penchant for going into elaborate detail uh, for 
illustrative purposes, just to add a little spice to whatever it was that he was saying. I assumed that he would describe heaven in no ambiguous terms. I was surprised to find that I wasn't able to find as many of these as I thought that I would. I mean, I found a sermon. He has one sermon called Christmas 365 Days a Year, in which he says that if you receive salvation from Jesus, that your life will be like Christmas 365 days a year. Um, yes. Christmas and the 365 day a year, both very biblical concepts. Yes, that's what he said. Uh, he had this other sermon in which uh, he said, uh, and, and this is a quote from him. He said, and, and, and when he would talk about heaven, he would it would almost be as if he would talk about it almost as like a throw-in, where he would say, this is something that's true, 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 and then he would describe, he would say a couple lines about heaven, and then he would move on from that. So what he would say is, and this is a quote from uh, his uh, sermon, Truth is Fallen in the Street, and it says, the Bible is still the word of God. Jesus Christ is still the virgin-born son of God. Our natures are sinful by birth. Christ died for sinners. Ye must be born again to go to heaven. There is a heaven that has golden streets and gates of pearl. There is a hell that has fire. And he would say, bam, 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 bam. These are things that true that are true. So he would often bring up streets of gold in reference to heaven. He would describe great men who influence him as men who walked streets of pavement now walk streets of gold that's something that he would describe um <clears throat> the yeah. you know the, the former fund or the the now deceased fundamentalist pastors who influenced him and he would talk about the streets of gold and the gates of pearl i'm glad that you found streets of gold and gates of pearl because those are probably the most common phrases that we will hear in any ifb depiction of heaven yeah, I mean, I went to the Jack Hiles Sermon Archive, and I looked up sermon after sermon after sermon to try to find heaven, and it was always streets of gold, gates of pearl, streets of gold, gates of pearl, streets mm -hmm. of gold, gates of pearl. And I tried to listen to a few, but it was difficult to like, he has so many sermons that I wasn't going to listen to like 20 hours of sermons just to find when he's talking about heaven. So I was kind of limited to uh, the sermons that I had transcripts of to search. Mm-hmm. That's the same thing that I do. If there were a way to just port an entire Jack Kyle sermon into my head and then listen to it and then be able to delete it, that would be great. If anybody invents that technology, please let me know. Well, now with AI, you know, uh, voice to text technology, I don't doubt that we'll be able to mine uh, Jack Kyle's sermons for a lot of information that we otherwise wouldn't have been able to mine it for. Streets of Gold, Gates of Pearl, it's a real place. It is a place of rewards, a place of excess by human standards, eating, drinking, rest, happiness. It's a place where you can meet all your biblical heroes and hang out with friends and loved ones who have died. A place of incredible beauty, no night, no sin, the everlasting presence of God forever and ever. That's kind of the gist of the IFB beliefs about heaven. But I may be about to blow your mind here. <laughs> Uh, let's talk about Streets of Gold and Gates of Pearl. Is this not actually in the scripture? It is in scripture, but guess where it came from? Where? Revelation. Okay. Chapter 21, which is specifically a vision of the new Jerusalem. But that's not heaven. That's not heaven. The new Jerusalem 
is the prophesied future dwelling place of the justified, which from a biblical literalist perspective does not exist yet because Armageddon has not happened. This is from Revelation chapter 21. I'm going to read it, read it to you where it comes from in the scripture. John, this is towards the very end of John's prophetic vision about the end of all things. John says that he was carried away in the spirit to a high mountain. And from the high mountain, he was able to see the city of New Jerusalem. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 18 through 21, King James. And the building of the wall of it was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. Side note, when I was a kid, I kept really hoping that when I got to go to heaven, I would get to go through the amethyst gate because that's my birthstone and I love amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold as it were transparent glass. So streets of gold, gates of pearl, not about heaven. I, my mind has been blown right now. Yeah. <laughs> It's like Jack Hiles would Jack Hiles would say, uh, like he he would you know I, I searched when I was searching the sermon archives like with those word like it would I would search uh, streets of gold or I would search gates of pearl in his like sermon archives of like the text and it would always be like God who sits upon his throne in heaven with its streets of gold and its gates of pearl God who is looking down and judging you yes you and your decision to not go to church but to watch football instead shame on you like that <laughs> that was a good hiles you just have to throw in the <coughs> um, <laughs> so like this streets of gold gates of pearl when you go to heaven when you die if you're a good ifb person and you're saved when you die you're gonna wake up in a place of streets of golden gates of pearl right just no um Oh. That imagery, and feel free to fact check me on this if you want to control F the whole Bible. Um, there are places online you can do that. The only place that that particular description appears in scripture is in Revelation, and it is absolutely crystal clear that it is not about heaven. It is about the new Jerusalem. So from a biblical literalist perspective, you will not wake up in heaven with streets of golden gates of pearl. When we talk about revelations, we're, I mean, eventually we're going to talk about whether or not this book is actually intended to be literal or whether it's metaphorical or allegorical as well. So, yeah, or whether it's prophecy that's already come true, hmm. like coded. That's, that's the one that, that I tend to lean towards, honestly, is that it is, it is prophecy, but it was a coded prophetic message about things that would happen in the lifetime of John the Revelator and in the next couple dozen to a hundred years after he died like i think the antichrist was nero oh interesting yeah like huh. so like it was prophecy and it wasn't but it wasn't literal it was coded and metaphorical prophecy and it was intended to help christians survive some roman emperors <laughs> but the ifb believe they, they believe that revelation is fully literal and in places that we can't understand it it's just a code that we can't crack yet but they believe it's literal, but then they don't listen to what it actually literally says. What I find interesting is 
about how much of the description of heaven comes from Revelation and how many uh, denominations, or at least of the New Jerusalem, how many denominations don't say that, well, they don't say that it isn't legitimate, but they also don't base a lot on it. Like John Calvin, I was reading about this. John Calvin didn't have much to say about Revelation at all. And Martin Luther declared that Revelation is, quote, neither apostolic nor prophetic. And the Eastern Orthodox Church doesn't even include revolution, uh, Revelation in its liturgy, which is, that was wild for me to read. I assume that it was like universal, but. Yeah. So this like highly physical, highly descriptive, here's what you could like sensory description of heaven. Here's what you're going to see with your eyes and hear with your ears and feel with your resurrected body. Um, We'll get to that is really not written about heaven in the scripture. Now, logically, if the new Jerusalem that is prophesied is like God doing a renovation on heaven, then maybe gold streets and pearl gates are just God's decorating style. And maybe the house, like my father's house, God's current abode, which we call heaven, maybe it does have gold streets and pearl gates. I would, you know, it's it's logical. Like maybe that's just the style that God likes, but it's not. It is not stated in scripture. Do you think that God has an induction stove, or He's got, um, like, like a think, gas? I mean, I always think of God having angels cook for Him. Oh, I mean, but that's that takes away half the fun. Yeah, you're right. I never thought about that before. The other imagery that we hear probably the most from the IFB, asides from gates of pearl, streets of gold, is the idea of mansions and rewards in heaven. So mansions and rewards. Let's do it. These come from a kind of a mixed bag of scriptural sources. Jesus did speak a little bit about the concept of rewards in heaven. Uh, He did not go around saying you're going to have a bag of gold or a beautiful necklace of emeralds or anything like that. But he didn't talk about rewards in a way that is, uh, I wouldn't say materialistic, but I would say tangible might be a word. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, Jesus said, Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus says, Then Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Those two quotes from Jesus are among very few scriptures that even hint at physical possessions in heaven. This is most commonly interpreted as, if you do good things and you are unselfish on earth, then good things will be waiting for you in heaven. Jesus didn't say what kind of good things will be waiting for you in heaven. He didn't say what kind of treasures, like metaphorical treasures, or if you're going to be walking around heaven wearing a Rolex. Of course, the IFB interpretation literally jumps immediately to, if you are a good Christian and you work hard for God, you're going to be walking around in heaven wearing a Rolex. I'm imagining Patch the Pirate digging up buried treasure on a deserted island in heaven. (laughs) R.I.P. Ron Hamilton. I hope his family's okay. 
neither John Piper nor Jonathan Edwards are slash where I have been. But I found a really interesting article on John Piper's website where he quotes Jonathan Edwards extensively and agrees with him. The quote from Edwards is, There will be a perfect harmony in that society. He's talking about heaven. Those that are most happy will also be most holy, and all will be perfectly holy and perfectly happy. But yet there will be different degrees of both holiness and happiness according to the measure of each one's capacity. So we're talking about a tiered system of heaven here. Yeah, but all are perfectly holy and perfectly happy. But if you have the capacity to be more holy than perfectly holy, then you can be more happy than perfectly happy. So this is like the animal farm heaven. Yes. (laughs) That comparison (laughs) had occurred to me. If you read the full article, Jonathan Edwards was saying, Everybody in heaven will be happy and well provided for, but the people who did more good works will have nicer stuff. This is something that I heard preached as a fact in IFB churches growing up. So the analogy that might, the kind of analogy that they might use, if you're a Christian and you don't do much for God, but you're saved, you go to heaven and you get a nice, great condition used Honda Accord with like 50,000 miles on it. Elite. But if you're the Jack Hiles type, if you did great works for God, you're going to be driving around heaven in a Maserati. I mean, the Maserati breaks down all the time, so I would rather have the Honda Accord personally. (laughs) The concept of laying up treasure in heaven and rewards in heaven is very present in scripture, but, but what isn't there is what kind of treasure what kind of reward? Because of biblical literalism, the IFB really tend to interpret that as treasure, like what you might find in a treasure chest, jewels and gold and precious things. And they interpret rewards as things that you would want in your physical life. The weird thing is that other scriptures that talk about physical rewards in heaven are often about earning crowns in heaven. There's a lot of talk about earning crowns in heaven. Um, In Pauline epistles, it seems pretty metaphorical, like the crown of perseverance or the crown of suffering. It's not framed as a physical crown that you get to wear in heaven. There are some scriptures that are actually about physical crowns in heaven, though. And these are crowns that are given at the Bema Seat Judgment. Which it it has occurred to me that we are going to have to do an episode on the Bema Seat Judgment, but that's the one that's triggering to me, like the way that Revelation gets to some of you people. (laughs) So it's going to, I'm going to have to pick a real good week to do that. So the Bema Seat, otherwise known as the Judgment Seat of Christ, is written about outside the book of Revelation, which is a good sign. It shows up in several Pauline epistles. Paul wrote that after all believers are taken to heaven, our works will be judged by God. Uh, This is also in Hebrews, it is appointed to every man once to die and after that the judgment. This is not a judgment of who is saved or not. It is a judgment of what good works did you do and were your motivations pure. So in the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat judgment, each person's works on earth are represented by physical objects like gold, precious gems, wood, hay, straw, etc. Your works are passed through a purifying fire. And if they had bad motivations, they will burn up like wood or straw. But if they had good motivations, they will make it through the fire, like jewels or gold would be able to pass through a fire 
and only become, would either be the same or be more pure after going through the fire. At the judgment seat, the Bema seat, you receive these rewards in the form of crowns, and then everyone turns around and throws all their crowns at Jesus's feet. If you've heard of the Christian band Casting Crowns, that is where their name comes from. Oh, interesting. So this really sucked to hear as a kid, because as a kid, I could not understand, like, why is Jesus going to get, like, realistically several million crowns and I can't even keep one? Like, as a, a little, little kid learning about this, I was very confused about why would Jesus not share? Because I wanted a crown. There are also passages about, like, the crowns that Christians can earn for extra righteous behavior, like the crown of suffering, the crown of perseverance. Um, there are five crowns that you can earn. This also stressed me out as a child because what if I got four of them but missed out on the fifth one? <laughs> because then I would have to spend eternity feeling like I was almost perfect. So that was all of this about crowns was extremely stressful as a kid. Some IFB do believe that if you earn one of the five crowns, you get to wear that in heaven, but you do not get to wear or keep your Bema seat rewards because you have to throw them at heaven's or you have to throw them at Jesus's feet. Out of all the passages about physical rewards in heaven or crowns that you can earn, most of them are not referring to things that you get to keep. And none of them are referring to things that you keep because they are valuable. Even if you go with the interpretation that you get to wear your own crowns in heaven, they're not, you don't get them because they're of value. You get them because it's an honor from God. So throughout Protestantism, you get these conflicting messages about rewards because it will always be, there will be crowns in heaven, but then you throw them at Jesus's feet. God's forgiveness and going to heaven and being in God's presence is reward enough and you won't want any other rewards. You will not lust after physical possessions like jewels or gold or fancy cars or watches or any of that because you're your sinful human nature of covetousness and lust will be removed. Your reward is simply being present in heaven and getting to praise God all day. But also there will be a ton of gold and jewels and riches beyond your imagination and you will have your very own mansion. It's a very conflicting message that was a lot for me as a kid. So are the crowns like when you get an achievement and you're playing Xbox? Yes. And then everybody can look at your like Xbox Live profile and see what achievements you have. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, but in heaven, there's no jealousy. So nobody's like looking at your crown and going, oh, I wish I had one. Like everybody's just happy for you and you're not jealous of other people who have more crowns than you. You're just happy for them. This is confusing to me. It um, is confusing to me also. <laughs> when we were researching for this episode, we were looking at what... Uh, the Jews say heaven is. We also looked a little bit into what Muslims say heaven is. And what is fascinating is that there is a lot of commonality between like IFB heaven and Muslim heaven. Yeah, specifically when we talk about material possessions or material rewards, there is a huge commonality between uh, Jannah and Christian heaven. So Islam began about 550 years after Christianity. And this material view of heaven isn't, I mean, it isn't really consistent with Catholicism or Orthodox Christianity, or at least what they're saying now. But mm. as we've discussed before, what people's conception of heaven 
has been has changed a lot over the years. So maybe it's possible from like, I mean, if we're just thinking about this from a historical standpoint, that what it says in the Quran that heaven is, is just what the prevailing view in Arabia in that time was about everything. I'm, I'm, I'm just like hypothesizing here. I don't really know. So when I was looking up the Muslim view of heaven, um, I found a direct quote from the Quran. And then I found a quote from a religious book in the 1980s. And those things agreed with each other. Okay. So I didn't do a lot of looking into whether ideas have come in and out of fashion, but it appears from that very basic research that it has kind of been pretty consistent. Okay. So what does it say? The Quran, it, so the, it, uh, the idea of Jannah, which is the positive afterlife, like what Christians would call heaven, is all over the Quran. Uh, chapter 25, verse 16 says that those who attain Jannah will have, quote, whatever they wish for forever. It goes on in chapter 55 and other chapters to describe lush gardens resting on brocade furniture in beautiful clothing abundant fruit, gold and pearl jewelry, wine that does not give you a hangover, and being reunited with friends and family who passed on before you. Except for the wine, that could literally be lifted from an IFB depiction of heaven. And it's that's specifically from the Quran. So yes. that's that's interesting that the Quran is of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. The Quran is the only one that actually says, this is what is in heaven. This is what it looks like. That's so interesting. Yeah, but the the extrapolation that biblical literalist Christians have made from the Bible is extremely similar to what the Quran actually says. It would be so fascinating if it turned out that the prevailing current Christian view of heaven was based on Islam. That would be fascinating. It would almost like not surprise me after what I read. No, it wouldn't surprise me either, because when you think about these are two cultures that definitely would have been in contact with each other. And this is a really big spoiler for next week, and I apologize, but the apocalypse of Peter in particular had a lot to do with this like temporal, this um materialistic view of heaven. And the apocalypse of Peter was recognized by a lot of the early church and then fell out of the scriptural canon but like it could have been canonized i think it is a uh, protestant and fundamentalist particularly people that have this very materialistic view of heaven i checked out the history of what do rewards in heaven mean from a Catholic perspective? And that has stayed pretty consistent, even from early Catholic theologians and even pre-Catholic Christian thinkers that were an influence on what became the Catholic Church. The Catholic position has kind of always been that the rewards you get in heaven are the presence of God and peace and happiness, not material things. Although many Catholic theologians made the distinction that good behavior on earth does warrant a better heaven experience. So the Catholic version is more like, in heaven, everybody has Spotify, but if you were really good, you get Spotify premium. If you were not so good, you have to listen to ads for all eternity. If there's ads in heaven, I'm going to be f***ing pissed. But the, but the IFB version is much more 
physical, tactile, tangible, materialistic. It's if you were really good, you get a fancy car. If you were just okay, you get a basic car. Do you see the the slight difference? Because a lot of Christians have this concept of like the better you were, the more rewards you get, or the better your heaven experience is going to be. But it it is a distinct, although small difference that the IFB applies it to physical possessions. That makes sense. If the less good version of heaven is just mobile game microtransaction heaven, then I'm not sure that's heaven. That kind of sounds like hell to me, but... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so while we're on the topic of physical possessions and rewards, we have to talk about the mansions. They're building a mansion on Hallelujah Street? Yes. Uh, I wonder if we should go take up the offering before we talk about mansions. Okay, let's do that. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, that group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We are talking about mansions in heaven. They're building him a mansion on Hallelujah Street. Yep. Go sound the horn, something. Da, da, da. I don't remember. That's the. Uh, I wish my voice were in good enough condition to sing it today, but I can't. They're building him a key change. No, we got it. Yeah. <laughs> John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3 in the King James, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. The IFB teaching is that there is a mansion custom built in the city of heaven for every believer. They will go so far as to say that construction builds begins on your mansion the moment you get saved. They will fantasize to great extent 
about how the good deeds you do on earth put another room on your mansion or help you earn more rewards. They will straight up say things like, Brother so-and-so who loves golfing drives the church bus for us every Sunday morning instead of going to the golf course. I tell you, every time he gets up and faithfully brings children to church, the angels are up there building a real golf course for him just behind his mansion. If he only came to church and didn't drive the bus for us, maybe God would give him a mini golf course or just a lifetime membership to Heaven's Top Golf. But his faithfulness, his faithfulness in driving that church bus every week is building his own golf course up there. That's actually pretty funny. That is not word for word something I have heard from an IFB pulpit, but that is exactly the way that they talk about adding to your mansion. It's your own mansion. You're going to live all by yourself in your very own mansion in heaven. And it is made clear, okay, when they talk about like the golf thing, it is made clear that they are speaking metaphorically, but it is also clear that that is what they really think and hope is going on up there. And it's like, it is a joke, but it's not a joke. Yes. Exactly. Because that's that's a very funny sentence to say. Like, And if you were an IFB preacher, I'm sure that if you said that, you would laugh a little bit about it, but you would say, no, but really, thank you so much. You're, you're great. That's, that's so interesting. But it's weird because like, if, everyone, if everyone has a nicer mansion than the next guy, then wouldn't everyone's mansions just keep getting nicer? Like, I'm imagining mansions in heaven. Like, Do you remember the big orange spot by Daniel Pinkwater? Like that street? So there are several problems with this. And that is one of them that you have just identified. If everybody's mansion is nicer than the, than the next guy's mansion, does it, it does it get to a point where it doesn't matter? If the streets are made out of gold and the walls of the city are crusted with diamonds and you're walking around with crowns on and the most blinged out gold and diamond jewelry, like does it does it get to a point where it doesn't matter because you could have the biggest, most beautiful diamond jewelry, but you're just wearing pavement and random building materials around your neck? I mean, yeah. Are you like walking around heaven like Russell Anderson, dropping your watch and ring in people's hands and asking them if they've ever held $100,000 in their hands before? <laughs> like, yeah. And they're just looking at you like, dude, this is heaven. My neighbor has more cars than um, what's that guy in Portland who had a DeLorean. Oh, who, like Ron Tonkin? The yeah. guy who, who like my neighbor has more cars than Ron Tonkin. I don't care about your cheapo $100,000 watch. Yeah. I do remember my childhood mansion fantasies being heavily centered around chocolate. Yes. Uh, I remember asking my dad <laughs> if I could eat chocolate all day and not get a tummy ache. And he said yes. So then I asked him if I could have my entire mansion made out of chocolate so I could just eat my house. And he said yes. So I was pretty excited about that. Honestly, Chocolate Mansion in Heaven sounds pretty nice. <laughs> I'd take that over Golden Mansion in Heaven. If gold is literally just pavement material in heaven, why would I care about a Golden Mansion as like a six, seven-year-old kid? I want a Chocolate Mansion. I would get a mansion made out of spaghetti. You really like spaghetti that much? I do, like, I do not like spaghetti that much. No, I do like uh, not as much as I like chocolate. I, I made spaghetti last night. I'm a personally, I'm more of a savory foods person than a sweets person. Mm. And I know I that you're do not get people like that. <laughs> you're a baker. You love sweet things. Just for me personally, I just prefer like I, I feel like Big Anthony and Streganona is what I imagine heaven is, is that uh, you're Big Anthony and you make the magic pasta pot. Just keep give, doing the pasta. And it fills the whole town with pasta, and then you get to eat all the pasta. And that is 
uh, I mean, you pretty much just described the marriage supper of the lamb, which is, it's an event that happens in heaven. We can't talk about it until we do revelation. Okay. <laughs> we'll get there. It's, it's striking on this magic pasta pot. Aside from being interested in a chocolate mansion, I also remember being super concerned about who my mansion neighbors would be. Oh, that's important. I was a very literal child <laughs> for reasons yet to be determined. So I was, I, I'm thinking of heaven as like a neighborhood street with mansions on it. And obviously I wanted to be next door to my family, but maybe I was interested in my brothers not being next door. Like maybe my brothers could be like a block away. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> and yeah. I had questions like, how does God decide which one of my siblings gets to be closest to my grandparents' house? Because like, I want to be next door to my grandparents. Also, one of my brothers had a pretty complicated water slide plan, if I'm remembering correctly. And I wasn't sure if I would want to be next door to the water slide. Like, that sounds fun, but also loud. And what if I have heaven neighbors that aren't my direct relatives? And what if I don't like my heaven neighbors? Well, I think that in this case, that God would do some sort of omnipotent central planning, omnipotent communism, and just does central planning and decides where everyone lives. I mean, that is pretty much what they believe in. Communism is anything that anytime the state decides to do something that the church or God should be doing instead. So, Right. But there are more than logistical problems with this whole mansion scheme. There are also theological problems and specifically biblical problems. Jesus didn't say there's a mansion for every saved person. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. He didn't say in my father's house is a mansion for each one of you. He could have. He didn't. It turns out that this verse is rendered very differently in different translations. And there are so many different versions of it that I checked out the Greek translation. The Greek word translated in the King James as mansion is monai. The anglicized spelling is M-O-N-A-I. In case anybody wants to look it up, I have linked you concordances and sources and all sorts of things about this. The meaning of Monet is lodging, dwelling place, room, abode, mansion, even stopping place or resting place could be an appropriate translation in the context of travel, like someplace you stay while you're traveling. Well, I was thinking that if... It says there are many mansions. It could be there are many mansions, but they're gods. They're not yours. Like God goes from being communist God to being like Jeff Bezos God. Right. Or like there are many mansions and you get a nice room in one of them. Going back to the translation of Monet, this is just my personal opinion. This is not coming from any expert. But having read about this, I almost feel like a modern translation might be sweets. The word sweet was not in use yet. Sweet life with God and Jesus. Uh, <laughs> the word sweet was not in use yet in 1611. Uh, the word sweet came into English usage closer to the end of the 17th century. But sweet seems like a good modern equivalent. If the translation is lodging, dwelling place, room, abode, stopping place. Like that is, it is Monet is a word in Greek that could be used for a place where you live permanently, like primary suite in a house. 
It could also be a word that you use for someplace that you stay while traveling or someplace that you stay as a guest of someone else. And in modern English, suite can move can mean both of those things. So I almost feel like that would be an appropriate modern translation as well. Just my opinion. The NIV renders this verse as, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? Do you hear how it's backwards? Yes. And more modern? In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. Sorry. I can't start a King James quotation without finishing. <laughs> but the NIV. Drama. Triggers <laughs> <laughs> yourself. Uh, the NIV. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? The ESV and many other translations also render this phrase as many rooms, and the New Revised Standard Version and many others render this as in my father's house are many dwelling places, which is similar. And all of those, based on the Greek word that we looked at, all of those are appropriate translations. But I think the New Living Translation, it is much less literal to the words that Jesus said. However, I kind of think they got the spirit of what he meant better than these other translations that I've been quoting. The New Living Translation says, There is more than enough room in my father's house, in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? I think Jesus is saying, There's plenty of room for you. Over and over, Jesus mentions heaven as my father's house. And pretty often throughout the Gospels, when he talks about the whole being God, being God's son thing, the people around him and even his apostles are a little skeptical. Even after he died, they all saw him dead, and then he came back to life. Even then, one of his apostles was not sure about the whole thing and, and didn't believe him. So Jesus is assuming that these people don't quite have the picture. Like he's telling them over and over again, no, like I'm God. Like, no, I am God's son. That is me. That's who I am. And they are just not, it's not like they're calling him a liar. It's like they just don't quite get it. So he's assuming, I think, when he's, when he said this quote, he's assuming that they are wondering in their minds, okay, but is he really talking about heaven or is he just like a trust fund kid and hasn't told us yet? And he's speaking to that skepticism that he knows his apostles have in their hearts by saying, no, really, there's room for all y'all where I'm going. He's using the hyperbole of many mansions or many rooms to express, guys, no, I'm not inviting you over to my rich dad's house for a long weekend here. My dad is God and I'm inviting you to his infinite house forever. Like he's really trying to get the point get the message through. That's what that's what I see in this verse, but nowhere in this verse does it say anything about there's a mansion for everybody. It's it's very clear, you know, he's speaking metaphorically. But it's I mean, it's it's clear like the biblical literalism thing to me where they have to it has to just be word for word. That to me is just so Did you ever listen to the song Karate Guy by the Lonely Island from the Pop Star movie? I don't think so. This feels like a fever dream for me to bring this up. There's a song where they say things like, we're kicking it, but not like karate. We're just hanging out, but not hanging like a noose, but chilling, but not cold. It can be any temperature. Like, 
I feel like the IFB would have been better suited with like a karate guy Bible. They have to clarify things, whether something is metaphorical or whether something is like idiomatic or whether something is, no, this is literally true. And it's, Isn't that the Amplified Bible? I don't know. What's, what's the Amplified Bible? I haven't heard it. Um, so ampl- I'm going to look up the same verse so that I can like keep it all on the same level. John 14, 1 through 3, Amplified Version. What is the Amplified Version? I'm going to have to read it to you to make it make sense. So King James, John 14, 1. <clears throat> Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In verse two, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. The Amplified Version says, do not let your heart be troubled, parentheses, afraid, cowardly. Believe, parentheses, confidently, in God and trust in him, parentheses, have faith, hold on to it, rely on it, keep going, and believe also in me. It's got like parentheses like every other word to give oh. additional context. That makes sense. Yeah. So it's a lot, it's a lot longer. Um, I can imagine it would be. But it gives like additional context from the original languages. That's probably the next one I need. I'm doing like the Pokemon Bible thing right now. <laughs> I need every oh. translation. Um, but that probably would have helped the, uh, the IFB. Yeah. No, because it does seem like it's clear to me from looking at that verse, he's speaking metaphorically. He's not literally saying there is a mansion for you and there is a mansion for you there, or there's a mansion. And I can imagine why, if he was saying there are many mansions in my father's house, there's room for everybody. Then people would be like, oh, well, if there's many mansions, there's a, there's a mansion for everybody. I can imagine why somebody would say that, but he's saying, no, well, I mean, it's, it's, it's it's so like clear to me nowhere, saying there's space for everyone. Not there is literally a mansion with a house that you get to live in and the streets are made of gold and Right. Know. And like nowhere in the text does he promise your own personal mansion with a golf course out back and your and a fancy sports car and a watch and fancy clothes and jewelry and all the other things that the IFB have extrapolated from this. But when you use biblical literalism to get to, I'm going to have my own mansion, like you get to that materialistic point and that's what you focus on and you've lost this really beautiful, simple message where Jesus says, there's room for you. I mean, it does feel like they're getting lost in the text, like they're missing the forest for the trees. The message of Jesus saying, there is room for you. You are coming with me. That is such a beautiful message for people who are believers. When you get into, well, I got to think about what my mansion's going to be like and who am I going to live next to and am I going to have a fancy car? You've missed the the actual the meat of what Jesus was saying. So if you're a person who wants to believe in Jesus and believe in the Bible, follow Jesus, like if that's your jam and you get hung up on the mansions thing, you've missed it. Uh, so another really common IFB teaching about heaven is that all of the people whose salvation you're partially responsible for will come up to you and say thank you. There was a song by a singer named Ray Boltz called Thank You for Giving to the Lord. And it's about a person who goes to heaven and then as soon as they get to heaven, there's like a line of people around the block to come up to them to say thank you. So these people are saying things like, well, you gave money to a missionary and then they came and told me about Jesus and I wouldn't be here in heaven if it weren't for you. I don't think this is in the Bible, but it is a nice thought, I guess. (laughs) Conversely, and this is, here's the thing. There's a flip side to this coin that is terrifying and is also not super in the Bible either. Some IFB people will believe that if you 
should have been responsible for someone's salvation and you failed to at least attempt to get them saved, that their blood will be on your hands in heaven. Um, wow. Some people, what? so like some IFB will say it is only until the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ, um, and then the blood gets washed off but you have to walk around in heaven with blood on your hands for a while. I've even heard some IFB preachers say that you will have blood on your hands your entire future in heaven. Like for eternity in heaven, you will walk around dripping human blood off your hands. That's crazy. And there was like, there was a super horrifying <laughs> sermon illustration that I have mostly blocked out involving a guest preacher at our church in a large bucket of red paint. I oh, God. don't remember what the end of that one was. I remember there was a tarp and a bunch of paint. And that's the last thing I remember. <laughs> um, I so, don't love that. I, I really don't love that. That's uh, yeah, it, it was very scary for me as a kid because Matt, like you're a child. You're a child. You do not have power to attempt to get everyone saved in your life that you think needs to get saved. Like you're a child, so you're told that everybody who isn't us is going to hell, so you believe it because you're a kid. And then you don't have the agency or the knowledge to go out and try to save all of those people that you believe are supposed to be saved. So you and so you feel stuck. And so it turns out I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and do the spoiler here. This is not in the Bible. If this has traumatized you also, please listen to me. This is not in the Bible. The concept of having blood on your hands, like in the in the way that we use it in a more modern text, like a more modern context, like, you know, if you murdered somebody, their blood is on your hands. If you were responsible for somebody's physical death out of your own negligence or bad behavior, then their blood is on your hands. That concept is in the Bible. Like when we when we say that we are quoting scripture, but it is wildly, wildly out of context to think that you are going to have blood on your hands in heaven. Um, God told Ezekiel, who is an Old Testament prophet, that if he failed to warn the people about coming judgment, that the people's blood would be on his hands. The phrase is also used in scripture to talk about murderers. Most often, it's used in a literal sense about people who kill other people. But this was a specific commandment to Ezekiel. It is not applied in the New Testament to Christians. So if this, like, regardless of whether you believe or not, if this traumatized you, we can put this to bed. Nobody is, if, if heaven and the Bema seat, if that is all real, nobody's going to be walking around up there with blood on them. It's, it's just, it is not in there. That's wild. That That's, that's crazy to me that you could get to heaven and still be like, well, you're here in heaven, but you know, you still have all this guilt and you're never going to live that down, even though you're up here in heaven. That's nuts to me. That's yeah. like, it's, how is it's that heaven? Wild. Uh, hold on. I'm looking up this verse because I want to proof text a, there's, there's a scripture verse that, that actually really disproves this. There it is. Romans 14, 12. So then every one of us shall give account of himself unto God. Uh, there, there are multiple scripture verses that basically say every person's salvation is their own responsibility. But the, the idea of everlasting shame for your failures, even in heaven, is really gross and not scriptural. And I really hate it. Like, even if you're saved, you do what you're supposed to do. You go to heaven. The idea that you could still be personally shamed and ostracized by God and shunned by other people for a failure that you did on earth 
it undermines the foundation of the concept of redemption. Like heaven is supposed to be like you were in Christian theology, in IFP theology, you were redeemed by God at the moment of salvation. So your sins are as if they never happened and you are fit to stand before a perfect God, not because of anything you did or didn't do, but because of Jesus's perfection. That is the IFP doctrine. And you reach sanctification, which is the end of a perfection process when you die and are accepted into heaven. So redemption, sanctification, you are standing before God as if you lived a perfect human life and never failed. So when you say that somebody could still be shamed and ostracized in heaven for a human failure and still grieve over their human failures, and that God would still put a punishment on them for their human failures, it undermines this incredibly important piece of IFB doctrine and Christian doctrine as a whole of redemption and sanctification. And it's incredibly painful to hear and it's incredibly scary. And I really hope it helps people to hear that not only does it conflict with many other parts of IFB doctrine, it is also just not scriptural. I really hope that helps people. You know what it's giving? It's it's giving like because because according to this doctrine, say you're like seven years old and you're like out soul winning or whatever, and there's somebody who you're not successful at winning over to Jesus or getting saved. Is God going to be like, well, you know, there was that one six year old when you were seven who didn't want to get saved, and if you'd have said this instead of that, then they would have done it, and therefore that blood is good. Like it's giving. We all have the same 24 hours. You know that. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, I was successful. I got this many people saved. And if you just be like me, because we all have the same 24 hours, if you just mm -hmm. be like, like, that's what it's giving. It's just right. And the teaching is supposed to be that, you know, if you were a seven year old and you were witnessing to a six year old and you did your best, and they chose not to get saved, that wouldn't be your fault because you did your best. But to children who are so often shamed for being children in the IFB movement, I think a lot of children tend to interpret that as, well, yeah, I did my best to try to witness to them, but if I had memorized my Bible verses better, I could have done a better job witnessing to them, so it's still my fault. Or maybe I disobeyed my parents, so I didn't have the Holy Spirit's power, and that's why that person didn't get saved, so it's still my fault. Or like if you're a, a kid and you're just like not that good at it, and you think, and like then you get older and you get better at it, and you're still thinking back to, man, I wasn't as good at this when I was six or seven or eight or nine or 10, and now I'm 15 and I'm kind of good at this. Man, even if I'm really good at this now, all those people that I wasn't good at getting saved back then, their blood's still going to be on my hands when I get to heaven, no matter how many people I get saved when I'm this age or older and, you mm -hmm. know, when I'm an adult, and no matter what I do with my life, I'm never going to be okay. Right. And you're praying obsessively for God to bring those people back across your path so you can try again, or for God to bring them to a different soul winner so they can still get saved. So then, it, so then your guilt will be absolved. It's, man. <coughs> like, even if you're, you know, anybody who you fail at saving, like if you, if you mess up and that person doesn't get saved, or if you try really hard and that person is so turned off by the way that you try that they're just like, F Christianity, F this Jesus stuff, these people won't leave me alone. I'm never going to get saved just to spite them. That's like, then you messed up and that person is in hell and it's your fault. Mm -hmm. 
That's or crazy. If you, were, That's- if you were called to be a missionary, so you go to Hiles Anderson College to become a missionary, but you fail one class, so you have to retake your entire senior year to get that one class done. And that sets you back six months on getting to the mission field. Well, all the people who died during those six months that would have gotten saved because of your ministry, their blood is now on your hands. So it it just, there is, in IFB teaching, there's no worse, no worse punishment than going to hell. But the it weaponizes that guilt and... I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to like put words to how terrifying this is because any human failing that you exhibit one time can be the cause of someone going to hell. Like if you're a good IFB girl and you go out in public with a skirt that's one inch too short one time, somebody's going to see that and now you don't have a good testimony anymore. And if you try to witness to them, they're not going to get saved. Boom, blood on your hands. That's that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and it's it like. That's kind I of imagine that's, head. Yeah, it does because anytime you do anything you're not supposed to do, it could potentially have this consequence. Like I was saying, you think, oh, if I disobey my parents, then God is going to take the Holy Spirit away from me. Um, Psalm chapter 53. And if I don't have the Holy Spirit with me, then I won't be able to be effective when I witness to people. And then if those people don't get saved because I didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit, it's my fault. We need to talk about the, hold on, I'm going to go put this in our episode schedule to talk about the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, do that. Uh, and there's a like Lester Roloff sermon I can reference and a Lee Robertson sermon. I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about like, do you remember, I guess you were still in fundamentalism around this time, so you wouldn't have seen this as much, but I remember, and I'm, you know, Sadie and I are on the younger end for millennials. We're both born in 93, but in like the early 2010s, late 2000s, early 2010s, there was this sort of sense that, and, and there was this sort of like prevailing opinion that was kind of sold to us that it's like millennials are the generation that's going to save the world. Do you, do you remember this? Were, were you aware of this sort of phenomenon, this sort of like? I think I was very vaguely and only through contact with the outside world. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. 
Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. World. So we're running short on time for the rest of this episode, and not just because of our entire Patreon bonus episode that we just accidentally did in the middle of the episode. But I wanted to speed run a couple of the other things that the IFB believe about heaven. And going back to what we were talking about way at the beginning with Greek catabasis, Jewish beliefs, mystics, visionaries, things that, things that Jesus said, all of these different sources for beliefs about the afterlife. So I want to tie these things into what sources they seem to have come from. There's an idea that heaven is like a garden paradise or a nature paradise. This one, I believe, is heavily influenced by Greek mythology. But I think it's also referencing the Garden of Eden. But I think it's also referencing Babylon. And that's just my theory. But we know that the Hanging Gardens of Babylon were one of the wonders of the ancient world. And this is something that people around the time of the writing of the New Testament would still have been culturally aware of. So I kind of think all of that ties in. The idea that we will be re reunited with loved ones. Also, it's not absent in the scripture. But it isn't the focus of a lot of scripture about heaven. If you read a lot of New Testament verses about heaven, as I have in the last week or so preparing this episode, the focus is really not on being reunited with dead loved ones. The focus is usually on being reunited in spirit with God. One of the early sources for being reunited specifically with people that are now dead actually tracks to the visions of St. Perpetua. And her, so St. Perpetua was a martyr late, like 203 AD, roughly. Oh, so pre-Islam. Yes, um, and pre-Catholicism, although hmm. she was later canonized by the Catholic Church. She was an early Christian martyr, and while in prison, she had these very detailed visions about God and heaven and her visions influenced the way that we think about heaven now, one of the major influences that she had was the idea of being reunited with dead loved ones. Um, again, it's not absent in scripture, but the focus that we have on it now, like that's like a major talking point about heaven, comes more from her visions than it does from scripture. But that's early enough in Christian history mm -hmm. that that could I mean, get- canon wasn't even set at the time. So that legit could have been canonized if the people doing canonization had thought it was from God. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting, and that's another episode we're going to have to do is about biblical canon. Hmm. It's just going to be a real monster to research. <laughs> yeah, because different. I mean, different groups think that uh, some things are canon and some things aren't, and that's fascinating. Yeah, and I'm going to have to look all of it up. <laughs> and you're going to feel like, who likes the Book of Enoch? I, so the book of Enoch has been like open in a tab on my phone. Okay. There may be others out there like me. I have like 40 something open Chrome tabs on my phone right now, um, which is actually a low number for me because up over a hundred is more normal. If you use Chrome on your phone, it, once you get past 99 open tabs, it just gives you a little smiley face instead of the number. Um, so I have that, and then I have like probably 60 tabs open on my computer at all times. 
because it's all the sources for this episode that I have to put in order and get the links and describe the link and put on our Patreon so that people can see my sources. Um, but in one of my many, many, many open tabs is the Book of Enoch because I know I like need to get into it, but I just have not yet had time. Uh, another thing that comes from actual canonized scripture is the idea that there is no nighttime in heaven. It's uh, from Revelation. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. That is from the same passage that talks about the New Jerusalem with the streets of gold and gates of pearl. So it's technically not about heaven, but that's one that does actually come from the Bible, although it is the Bible by way of mysticism because it is from Revelation. Another one that actually comes from Jesus is that there is no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. This is one that the fundies really get bent out of shape over. So somebody asked Jesus if a, if a per, if a woman was married to many different men on earth. So she was married to somebody and then he died and then she married somebody else and then he died. All legitimate marriages, all legal marriages, all, all religiously legal marriages. Who is her husband in heaven? And Jesus said, well, none of them. There's no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. And the fundies really hate this. I can imagine. Because everything on earth is about marriage. Like that's one of their big things. Well, that's also, I mean, the, the Mormon doctrine is that if you get married to somebody, if it's sealed in the temple, then that's sealed for eternity. Right. And men can be sealed to more than one person, but women cannot. And that was also the thing that Jack Scop wrote to his victim. Right. You know, so this is... Right. Right. So if you say as a fundy that you believe that you're going to be married to your spouse in heaven, you get accused of being a Mormon. Sorry, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But the the fundies <clears throat> really hate this teaching, and it's kind of funny to see them like go in circles about it. The other prevalent IFB view of heaven is that there is no sin, and your activities are pretty much just praising God forever. Boring. Yeah, some IFB fantasies of heaven that I've heard, like to try to make it less boring. Like, well, you get up in the morning and then Isaiah is going to give a sermon and then a massive million member choir is going to sing. And then Lester Roloff is going to sing a solo. And then we all go to lunch and we eat and eat and eat and eat and eat. And then after lunch, it's Jesus praise time. And we all go stand around Jesus and praise and worship him. Uh, but without any dancing or raising our hands, obviously, because this is the IFB. Uh, that, even that description that they used to try to make it seem less boring, never really appealed to me. But if you want to read something that I do like about what will we be doing in heaven, there is a piece called The Employments of Heaven. It's by a pastor named T. DeWitt Talmadge. And I have that linked in our sources. So if you want to hear a much nicer version of what will we what will we be doing in heaven? I recommend that you check that out. I mean, the IFB heaven seems like a very long Christian telethon. Yeah, like eternal telethon. Talmadge's version of heaven was I found it much more comforting. <laughs> um, it was it was basically whatever you loved on earth, you're still going to love in heaven. So I can read like a tiny piece of his sermon on this. In the first place, I remark that all those of our departed Christian friends who on earth found great joy in the fine arts are now indulging their tastes in the same direction. 
On Earth, they had their gladdest pleasures amidst pictures and statuary and in the study of laws of light and shade and perspective. Have you any idea that affluence of faculty at death collapsed and perished? Why so, when there is more for them to look at and they have keener appreciation of the beautiful, and they stand amid the very looms where the sunsets and the rainbows and the spring mornings are woven? Are you so obtuse as to suppose that because the painter drops his easel and the sculptor his chisel and the engraver his knife, that therefore that taste which he was enlarging and intensifying for 40 or 50 years is entirely obliterated? These artists or these friends of art on earth worked in coarse material and with imperfect brain and with frail hand. Now they have carried their art into larger liberties and into wider circumference. He goes on to talk about how the the greats, like the Renaissance great artists, are now seeing in real, like in their, in reality, the things that they painted. Like Michelangelo can go meet David and do a statue of him. So I, I felt that was much more um, affirming, <laughs> validating, and not, does not sound boring. It's basically whatever you loved on earth that was not sinful, you get to enjoy that forever. Okay, well, I've never been good at basketball, and I don't think it would be heaven for me if I could, if I were not like maybe three or four inches taller, and I could like go to heaven and like play one on one with Bill Russell. So, if I'm not, I've never been good at that. So, Talmage's take would be: you can go to heaven, and you can be three or four inches taller, but you don't automatically become good at basketball. You get a thousand years to work on being good at basketball. Oh, so it's like the hyperbolic time chamber in Dragon Ball Z. Sure. <laughs> so cool. well, I think that's <laughs> what I needed to hit about IFB beliefs of heaven. I want to one more time, you know, affirm and validate listeners who don't believe in heaven at all. That's fine. And I'm glad you stuck with us through this episode. But if you do believe in God or believe in an afterlife, I hope this episode has shown some of the many, many sources that IFB beliefs about heaven come from, and how these beliefs are not as straight from the source as they would have you think they are. The IFB beliefs about heaven are influenced by other religions and by mystics and by a lot of capitalism and materialism. And if the IFB version of heaven brings you comfort and makes you want to be a good person on earth, more power to you. But I don't think we have to envision heaven in a way that doesn't bring us comfort or doesn't want to make us do good with our lives on earth. Because even scripture says, I have not seen nor ear heard nor has entered into the heart of man the things which God has, hath prepared for them that love him. Even scripture says, whatever you're imagining, you're wrong and it's better than you think it is. So I would just encourage people who are believers don't to not worry about the specifics and focus on what brings you joy, what brings you comfort, and what most importantly wants makes you want to be the best person that you can while you're here in the life that you know you do have. That's wonderful. Thank you for saying that. Um, and I think that's where we're going to end our episode. Next week, we're going to talk about a topic that's not quite so rosy. We're talking about hell. Estes Perkle's favorite topic to give <laughs> sermons on. So, I just took like a that, I took a drink of coffee right before you said Estes Perkle. <laughs> the S- I mean, the, if funny. Estes Perkle had like his own brand of coffee machine, it would be the Estes Percolator. No, nothing. No. Okay, I, I'm sorry. The mic. No, I had to mute because I was still laughing. Oh, okay. And coughing. 
I thought that you were just, uh, you know, just just giving me like crickets on that amazing. No, I muted the mic because I was still coughing. (laughs) Okay, well, I'll I'll take your word for it that my joke was very funny because it was. Thank you guys for tuning in so much. Yeah, next week we're talking about hell. Uh, You can follow the podcast on social media. Join our Patreon for a very extended version of today's episode where Sadie and I tell fun stories about the job that we used to have, and also where we talk about. how uh millennials were kind of like brainwashed to have a god complex which is fun too it's pretty Uh, much an episode within an episode yeah that'll be a lot of fun uh thank you guys so much for tuning in uh the you can find all that bonus stuff on patreon patreon.com slash leaving eden podcast uh you can join our facebook group and our subreddit both of those are called eden exodus and you can Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, threads at Leaving Eden Podcast. My socials are all at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Sadie? Oh, my socials? Yeah, yeah. you can follow me. <clears throat> you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music, on Twitter, as long as it exists, at Hell Yeah Sadie, and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll see you guys next week. Uh, bye bye old rolling river of time you've healed me in too many days no regrets no Yeah.